Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we are joined by Arizona Tennis Classic founder and director Johnny Levine to discuss the origins of one of the premier events on the ATP Challenger calendar. Of course, this Arizona Tennis Classic comes that second week of Indian Wells. Why is that significant? Because so many of the top players who either fail to get into the main draw of Indian Wells or end up getting knocked out early at that 1,000-level event, they go to get more match play in at this Arizona Tennis Classic Challenger event. Typically, the lowest-ranked player who receives direct entry into the main draw, that player is typically a top 100 player. That's the case once again here in 2023, and that's why our Crack Rackets team is so excited to be able to get to head down to Phoenix for this year's Arizona Tennis Classic. Of course, that's why I am so excited to share my conversation with tournament director Johnny Levine with all of you listeners today. And we talk about the origins of this event, why it was so important to Johnny to bring professional tennis back to the Phoenix community. Of course, I also had to ask him about his own standout playing career and so much more. It is a fantastic episode that I am certain all of you Cracked Rackets fans are going to enjoy. So without further ado, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with the one and only Johnny Levine. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is a man you may know best as the 1984 NCAA single semifinalist out of the University of Texas. Of course, from there, he went on to have a top 50 pro career, and now he's the founder of the Arizona Tennis Classic, an ATP Challenger event that happens that third week in the calendar in March. Welcome on to the show, Johnny Levine. Johnny, thank you for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? Doing great, Alex. I'm here in Phoenix getting ready for our big event, and uh, I'm honored to be on your show, and I'm looking forward to talking with you. Well, let me just say off the back, honored is far too much. You you know, again, it, it, the pleasure is all mine. And believe me, we are going to nerd out on your college tennis career, your pro tennis career. I have a lot of Michael Pernforce questions. I'd oh like boy. to throw your way a little <laughs> oh, bit shit. later. But uh, of course, the place I want to start is with that Arizona Tennis Classic, because it is an event that uh, has come onto the calendar over the course of the past few years. Of course, the inaugural event held in 2019. And all of us American tennis fans are looking for any opportunity to go see some of the best players in the world compete. Your event provides exactly that for the Phoenix community. I want to just start more broadly with, you know, why for you it was important because I I saw you read about, uh, discuss it, excuse me, in some interviews you've given, but why was it important for you to try and do that, to bring pro tennis back to your community? Well, Alex, you know, um, tennis is, uh, 
huge part of my life that, you know, I, I'm, obviously I'm not in the tennis business, but, um, you know, having, having played it all my life, you know, in the different levels, um, you know, I'm very passionate about the sport. I went on to a bit, have a business career and, um, always followed the tennis, go to some, some of the major tournaments and have connections still, you know, with different players and guys that I used to play with some very close friends of mine. Um, so we're, we're, we're still, you know, kind of connected to the tennis world and in Phoenix, um, you know, they used to have an ATP event here. It was a 250 in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, it was a great tournament. Um, you know, it ended up leaving, moving to, uh, Las Vegas, unfortunately, I think in the early two thousands, maybe 2005, six or seven, something like that. And so tennis had a void of professional tennis, uh, for many years. And in, in my mind, um, I got to a point, you know, where I just felt like it would be a really great challenge for me to try to put together, a. a a tournament here in, in Phoenix. And the thought was, um, you know, it's difficult to get a 250 event to have the right week. I felt like, you know, a challenger would be the way to go. Um, you know, at the time that I was thinking about it in, in, you know, 2007, 16, 17, 18, the USTA was promoting college, um, you know, challengers. And so there was one that, um, they did at ASU. It was a small one, but my, my, kind of vision was to try to do the tournament, have the tournament the week between Indian Wells and Miami, because you get a great field. The weather is typically phenomenal in Phoenix. There's a great vibe in, in Phoenix and Scottsdale in that, at that time period. The tournament was in, in Dallas and, and it had been there about five years. I'd been in touch with the ATP and said, if, you know, if that, uh, that tournament ever, uh, ever, you know, goes away, we would love to have it. And, and they had some struggles. They did a great job, but the weather was tough on them and it came available. And, um, you know, we, we did a lot of scrambling, uh, in 2000, you know, 18 to prepare for 19. And, um, actually it was in 2019 is when we really started it. Um, no, I actually I take that back. It was 2018 in the fall that we found out we were going to do it. We got with the Phoenix country club. And we, we, we got with some sponsors, the community really wanted to see pro tennis and that's how it got kind of got kicked off. And we got a lot of wheels in motion and people in my business started helping. We, we, we ended up forming a 501 C three. So it's not a profit center at all. It's, it's a, a give back completely to the community. And it, it, you know, the proceeds primarily go to Phoenix children's hospital um, who was involved with the Scottsdale tournament. They're friends of mine over there. Um, so we thought that if we could have a give back to the community, bring tennis back where, where people in, in, in Phoenix wanted to see this high level of tennis, that it would be a great community asset to, to, to Arizona. And it's worked out quite well. We, we have a great, uh, team in place to, 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 uh, organize the event. And the field is amazing every year because of that strategic place on the calendar. And we're just continuing to grow it. So it's uh, it's been very positive. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of things there I do want to follow up on. The first and most pertinent and shout out to you. Shout out to the team. The week you guys found on the calendar, March 13th to the 19th this year, but that second week of Indian Wells. That's just good strategy. We got to call out where we see it. And again, to to have 
that field of players, that caliber of players where there are, to your point, so many who may lose early in Indian Wells, want to get a few more matches in prior to the start of Miami or they're not playing Miami. They want to get one more week in before they head over to Europe for the start of the clay courts. That was strategic. Was it not finding that week in particular? Because, you know, again, how much of the field was a concern of yours in putting this event, getting the right sort of field to draw, you know, the the right sort of crowd? Yeah, I mean, you've got all the Europeans and the foreign guys over here from Indian Wells. Every top player in the world plays Indian Wells. There's a little bit of a gap between Indian Wells and Miami. So if players lose, they don't want to practice for two weeks. And they, you know, they'd like to take advantage of having a hospitality where they can stay in a hotel and get more matches, make some more money. So, you know, the, a lot of the U.S. guys, and we hope that U.S. guys play our event, but the U.S. guys can go home and they can work out where, where they live. So that's why you know we have a real global field i mean it's it's an array of guys from france from spain from asia um all over the world we have guys but they're all highly ranked i mean our cutoff last year was 77 the original Mm -hmm. cutoff the final cutoff was 81 which is you know better than many 250s most 250s so you know that was the strategy was i couldn't get a 250 but let's get the best challenger field we could get we have pretty much the best week and um it's it's insane i mean we had berrettini win it the first year and casper rude was in that field lorenzo senega was in the field david goffin you know and so um this year, I think we're going to have guys in the 30s that are going to be in the, in, in the initial uh, acceptance list. So it's, it's tremendous. I personally, you know, coming from the United States and having played college tennis, would love to see more of the Americans. I've been given wild cards to American guys. We gave one to, uh, to Chris Eubanks and Brandon Nakashima last year. And so that, that's a goal of mine, too, to, to keep the U.S. guys thinking about our tournament as well. Mm-hmm. And to that end, you talk about that field. Quick nerd alert. 2019 was Matteo Berrettini's breakout season at the tour level. That challenger victory of his in Phoenix came early on in the season. As you were watching it, were you like, oh, man, this guy's good? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, well, he was 57 in the world when he mm-hmm. entered our tournament. So he was really coming on strong. But the guy, you know, we could see the talent level and the strength and the power and the, you know, the, the, the competitiveness that he had and the huge forehand. And, you know, he played Mikhail Kukushkin in the finals who had, I believe won the the event the last year that it had been in, in Dallas. And, um, you know, it was seven, six in the third. I mean, it was, it was a tremendous match. And obviously, you know, Mateo went on to, he got to the semifinals of the U.S. Open, you know, months later. And uh, everyone in the community became a Mateo Berrettini fan very quickly. You know, he's a great looking guy and he's, you know, well behaved. And, um, you know, people still talk about him here as being our inaugural champion. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that is something that an experience like this, an event like this, because it is a little bit more personal, I would say than your typical big tournament because you're sitting courtside. You are right up next to these players. And, you know, because it's such an intimate scene, such as the Phoenix Country Club, you have the opportunity often early in the event to interact with players. I've seen that at so many different challenger events that I've had the privilege to attend. And I'm curious, 
because I've talked to other tournament directors about this and so frequently it this is obviously the hardest part is finding a venue, finding sponsors to buy into the vision that you have for an event. I know it's a personal topic, I suppose. And, you know, again, please be as candid as you're comfortable being. But how do you sell this? Like that that's the million dollar question, right? Or I suppose like the two hundred forty five thousand dollar question, depending on the scale of the event, is how do you find the money? How do you find the venue? How do you find people to buy into your vision? Great question. And it's really the key component, right? I mean, how do you fund an event? And uh, the model in the U.S. has been, it's a struggle. And, and that's why a lot of tournaments have not made it. Uh, we're very unique here, Alex. And I think you'll find that if, when you come out to visit. But um, we have a lot of relationships in the community, you know, uh, being from here. And we do a lot of business here. Um, and a lot of the uh, business relationships have supported the event. You know, it being a 501c3 is a nice component and the Phoenix Children's Hospital is the beneficiary of, of the proceeds that we that we have after we cover our expenses. So we're very tight on how we run the operation. But we've had just tremendous sponsors and they've really stepped up. And without them, it wouldn't happen. Um, and you will see, you can go to our website and see our sponsors. It's 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 a lot. And we are so grateful for them. And we were also grateful for the Phoenix Country Club. And when we sat down with them in 2018 to discuss the possibility, um, it was it was a big meeting. And, and, and we talked through a lot of different things. And it's primarily a golf club, but they wanted to do something for the tennis members. They have the Schwab Cup, um, you know, in the fall for the golfers. And uh, they used to have a $25,000 event for women. So they were familiar a little bit with tennis, um, having run, had a tournament there. So they are amazing to work with. And um, they've just gotten so behind the event. They love it. Their tennis members love it. Um, The director of tennis is all in on it. And we're so thankful that they give up their courts for us. Um, And they, they really, really, um, embraced it. And so we're, we're, we're thankful to the club. We're thankful to the sponsors. And then we have a tremendous general public that buys tickets, um, you know, up on our, on our website, the tickets can be bought and through, through Eventbrite and our ticket sales are just phenomenal. Um, and so it's, it's just been, uh, you know, a team effort on all parts and, um, we're building on it. We're learning more every year. And it's just going to continue to grow. And and we're really excited about it. And to that end, I'm very excited to get to know all the sponsors. I'm very excited to get to know the Phoenix community. And I have a follow up on them in a moment. But having watched the event on the stream, having seen the photos, I'm ecstatic to be at the Phoenix Country Club. I'm ecstatic to, again, meet the community that I have so frequently learned. You know, it's not year one of the event that it's going to shine. It's year three. It's year five where you really see the community start to buy in because they, you know, get spoiled and they, dare I say, they enjoy the opportunity to have these players come in. They want to, you know, show like, please come back to our community. We want to support you. And to that end, um, again, my follow up here, am I going to be able to push this Phoenix tennis community? I'm going to be able to have some fun with them. Are they, you know, do they embrace the action? Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you had said earlier, 
you know, when you go to Indian Wells, it's obviously a tremendous venue. But, you know, when you sit in the stands there, you're set back pretty far. I mean, this is you know, the center court. You're right up on the action. Um, and the sponsors can, you know, they're right around the court and they, they, they can't get any closer without being on the court playing. <laughs> so, you know, that, that environment and then seeing, you know, being at this beautiful historic Phoenix country club and the players are, you know, eating lunch, coming out, you know, on the patio and enjoying the great weather and the view and everything and every, everything is close up. So that's a feel that, um, that you don't typically get at the bigger events. And so I think that, that, uh, you know, our community appreciates that. And so that's been a big uh, allure to, to the fans and the sponsors, uh, in, as a whole. Mm-hmm. And you alluded to it already, but your relationship with the Phoenix children's hospital, how proceeds from this event go to that. I read in an interview you gave, that the goal, I believe, last year was $25,000. Now, Crack Rackets fans, we are going to hit that number this year. That's, uh, are we making that the goal this year or are we aiming bigger? Last year, we raised 115000 Okay, we're aiming bigger. I like it. That's much yes. better. Last year, we raised one hundred and fifteen, wow. and we will – the way things are going now, we'll, we'll, we we should again be over a hundred thousand dollars. That's what the what we're seeing right now, and obviously we have a, a few weeks left to go. But um, it's it's just been phenomenal uh, from that perspective. It's just been a, a, a tremendous amount of support, um, and we're just blessed. And the Phoenix Children's Hospital is is um, very grateful for for what we're doing, and and the collaboration has been nice and. We also have um, a, a, an entity called Serve the Future that um, does tennis mentoring and tennis coaching for high school kids in underserved communities, and um, they've got involved, and we, we give them some support too. They bring kids out to the events. Some of the kids are ball kids. Uh, it's an opportunity for them to see this high level of tennis that they normally wouldn't see. And um, so between Phoenix Children's Hospital and Serve the Future, I think we're we're hopefully making an impact. That is exceptional to hear. And again, another reason we here at Crack Rackets are so excited to get down there this year. Yeah. All right. I think I like that 100,000 number. We'll see what our Crack Rackets community can do to help as well. And, you know, certainly the fields have always been exceptional. We know the tennis is going to be entertaining, dare I say. Are tickets still available or have we already sold out? I'll tell you, it's getting tight on already on the Saturday, Sunday, but they are still available. There's Mm -hmm. a couple different options. If you go to Arizona tennis classic.com, it will lead you to where you can purchase tickets. Um, And uh, we have Tuesday through Friday, we have two sessions, but a general admission ticket is good for both sessions. So, we start typically in the morning. That that schedule will come out soon, I believe, um, 10 in the morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then we go to noon on Friday. And then the night session, Tuesday through Friday, is 6.30. There'll be a couple matches on center court. There's food and beverage out there. It's, it's a really, really nice environment. We're keeping our fingers crossed for good weather like we had last year. And um, it's just it's just a great social, social atmosphere and, and watching just some of the highest level tennis there is. Can I sneak the wild cards out of you yet, or are we not ready to announce? We can't announce yet. Um, we, 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 we don't know. This is a unique situation. 
communication with Indian Wells. We'll have the acceptance list next week, and I'm pretty certain we'll be in the top, you know, the, the last guy in on the direct acceptance will probably, will for certainly be in the top 100. You know, last year it was 77. Sure, it'll be close to that. But we have kind of a fluid field because of the Indian Wells situation. It's one of the only weeks, two-week period where players can enter two tournaments. And if they get past the third round of Indian Wells, they can automatically pull out. Then our field drops down from there. So it moves around a little bit. But at the same time, we can have a top guy lose an Indian Wells that didn't enter our tournament that says, you know, maybe they've been hurt. Maybe they want more matches. They'll ask for a wild card. And so that's why we kind of have to save most of the wild cards till the end. Um, and so it, it, sometimes we get really surprised. We got Goff in the first year at 21 in the world. Um, so we, we we're holding out for hopefully, um, you know, as high ranked players as we can get. Mm-hmm. Well, if all else fails, I'm happy to lose an Ono first round match, but I'll make it entertaining. You know, that that I can guarantee you. Uh, we, but, we'd love to see you on the court, Alex. That would be fun. <laughs> you say that now. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah, we absolutely. And, you know, again, to that end, I want to talk about your time on the court because you talked about it earlier growing up in this Phoenix community. What tennis made to uh, meant to you? Let me just ask you this. What makes a kid from Phoenix who uh, was a high ranked junior had options why not stay on the Pacific coast? Why go to Texas? What draw, uh, what drew you to the Longhorns? Well, my famous story on that Alex is, well, first of all, I grew up here in Phoenix at a, at a very unique junior tennis club called the West side tennis club, no affiliation to, uh, to forest Hills, but there was a coach, kind of a renowned junior coach that he was a very, you know, elderly guy, but he was from the East coast and he taught really great, form form and ground strokes and had a lot of great juniors had national champions so i played there and there were two guys that um that were ahead of me by five six seven years that uh were rivals and they they both played at the west side tennis club and one was bruce nichols who went to ucla and the other was Stuart keller who went to texas Stuart was a teammate of steve denton and Stuart keller i mean uh steve denton and kevin kern and gary plock and uh, Bruce Nichols was was a teammate of, you know, uh, John Austin. They won the NCAA doubles. So those were the two schools I wanted to go to. And I visited both schools. And um, Glenn Bassett, I loved at UCLA. He's a great coach. Uh, went, a vis- went on a visit there. And then I went on a visit at Texas, you know, because Stewart had promoted Texas. And um, they were like night and day trips. I mean, I have to tell you, you know, I went to one of the practices at UCLA and it was a very cutthroat environment, guys fighting for, for those spots. And they, you know, they were basically, um, you know, the national champions the year before that I was going to enter. And it was just going to be a war to, to make the team. And um, guys, you know, after the practice kind of went their own way. I went to Texas and it was just the opposite. Um, it was such a family atmosphere. Coach Dave Snyder was one of the all-time great collegiate coaches and winning percentage and was just is just a phenomenal person and and great morals, great ethics, great coach, um, had great teams, and um, the guys were many of them were for te- from Texas. I came in with a guy that I played junior tennis with in doubles, Tom Fontana from New Jersey. So we formed a pretty good team. We were both highly ranked, uh, you know, in the eighteen and unders, and so those guys were like family to me. 
And I knew right then and there on that recruiting trip that that was the feeling that I wanted when I would go to a big school. And so that's how I chose Texas. And ultimately, the decision pays dividends for you. Um, You know, looking back now, let's just nerd out because that 84 run, I, I had a coach by the name of Ed Nagel, a little bit younger, I think, than you. He's more, I think, like 86 to 88, 85, 88, so just past where you were. But so the, the reason I bring that up is he started out at Pepperdine, and his teammate was Kelly Jones, two-time NCAA doubles champion, who you just 0-1 in the first round of the NCAA tournament, which, like, looking back at a win that's casual, that's a nice one. Of course, second round. Oh, another future NCAA champion in USC's Rick Leach. But that's not the guy I want to ask you about because I do want to ask you about Michael Pernfors because whenever you have a discussion, and we have a lot of these discussions, again, it's not often I get to have a Pernfors discussion. So I appreciate you allow, indulging uh, my interest here. Uh, looking back at some of the great players in college tennis history, obviously modern times, everyone points to Steve Johnson, but you ask anyone from pre 2000, the name that always comes up is Pern Force. Now he's a guy you obviously faced in that NCAA semifinal. He clips you in three there. Was he as good as advertised? Talk to me about the level you saw, because I think people, you know, people see Cam Norrie and the Ben Shelton's of the world now I think there was a time, particularly in those 1980s, when that was just the theme of college tennis. Well, first of all, I, I know Ed Nagel. Um, okay. I played juniors with him, and he was a great player. So um, that's number one. Uh, as far as, um, you know, that run at the NCAAs, <clears throat> you know, number one seed at that time was Paul Anacone, a good friend of mine and still remains to be a very close friend of mine. And then I was seated number two. He got and, you your uh, freshman year, right? Anacone did? He did. He did. Yeah. He did. And, and, and what happened there was, um, you know, my freshman year, I was having a great, great season. I had beaten the number one player in the country, Rodney Harmon from SMU. And I was moving up in the rankings. I think I was getting close to top 20 and, and I, got injured playing basketball and I, and, really? and I it was unbelievable yeah I got was in a cast for two months I still made the NCAAs pick up or team organized it was kind of like a basketball class okay. trying to help help I my like grades it. I like but it. it was boy it was it was just it was horrific because I was really playing great and um I still made the NCAAs I, I mean I didn't play any conference matches after that and so but I was still able to make the NCAs and made the college junior Davis cup team, but I lost Anaco in first round. Okay. But anyways, back to, back to the second or the, my third year playing the NCAs and that, that field, you know, Anacone had lost. And I think we had, um, you know, Lawson Duncan on the other side who I'd beaten in the college indoors. And then he was playing Barry Moore who was a great player and I was playing Pernforce. So I, at that point was probably favored to win. And I felt very confident going into the match. I didn't really know that much about Pernforce other than that he was from Georgia and I was playing in Athens and that, that, that's tough. So I was up six, one, five, four serving and, um, two, one in the game. And I remember a couple of those points, like it was yesterday, unfortunately. <laughs> and, um, you know, hung up, you know, he, he hung in there and I got the nerves got a little bit to me, but, um, more so the crowd turned and there was a situation where he hit a ball and the ball popped 
and I claimed that the, there was a dead ball, and it was, and so they replayed the point, but but the crowd went crazy on me, and the momentum was tough to to control, and I ended up losing the seven six, and then I think it was six one or two in the in the third, and it was pro, you know one of the most devastating losses of of my career, and. Um, it was very unfortunate because I felt like I had a really great opportunity to win the NCAAs. I did finish the year ranked number two, but, but Pernforce, you know, at that time, you know, he just is a crafty guy. He doesn't miss. He, 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 he was very aggressive when he needed to be off that forehand, but he was a tremendous athlete. He was a late bloomer and, um, the guy had a great pro career. I mean, I think he finaled or won maybe, you know, the Canadian open, he got to the finals of the French open. Um, tremendous clay court player, just, just an all around player, but a great athlete and what a great career he had. Mm -hmm. Listeners can't see this, but I have a massive smile on my face. I just want you to know why this podcast exists is because Ed couldn't help himself back in the day, like Buff Faro, Paul Harhoos, all these people. I did this routine once for people in the tennis channel green room and I guess this is a name drop, but Jim Courier happened to be sitting there and he goes, why do you know these names? And I'd be like, well, like I have this coach and you should just talk about all these stories. And like, again, the reason I bring all this up, not to ask you to relive these moments. And I appreciate you sharing that because what a gem of a moment there. Um, talk to me about the level you saw from these guys and, you know, college tennis as a pathway to the pros then. Was it legitimate? You know, did you, you know, were, did you feel as if you were competing with guys who were, you know, who had similar pro aspirations? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you talk about Anna Cohn and, and Barry Moyer and Greg Holmes and David Pate, Scott Davis and Dan Goldie and, Rick Leach and Jim Pugh and Kelly Jones and Tim Poss. I mean, the list goes on and They're on. They're all top 100 guys. All top, all top 100 guys. And, you know, Robert Seguso, Ken Flack was part of that. Um, unfortunately, passed away, but um, fairly recently. But, you know, there were just just so many great guys that, that, that played college tennis. And the goal was to go on the circuit, whether or not you stayed four years or not. Typically, you know, guys that had, you know, good pathways would – stay at least two years um, and then move on. Sammy Giamalva was one of the guys from our uh, group that, that did not um, go to college as well. It was Jimmy Brown, who I played in the finals at Kalamazoo and he, he ended up going straight to the pros and had a really nice career in the, in the top 80, but uh, a great, great clay quarter. Um, you know, Jimmy Arias was the other guy that went straight to the pros. So there were guys that did that, not many of them, but Back then, there were you know probably 30, 35 guys in the top 100 that were from the U.S. So it was much different. It wasn't as global as it is now. Um, and the level today is just the, the depth is just off the charts. I mean, you would think of a guy 3, 400 in the world, not like what it is today to be 3, 400 in the world. So that was the major difference that I see right now. But um, those were tremendous times. And you know, you had Brad Gilbert and, you know, Mike Leach won the NCAAs, didn't have quite that career, but, um, geez, you know, Tim Mayotte at Stanford and the, the, there were all sorts of guys, Alex, that, that had just fantastic careers. And, um, you know, it was, it was really a good, good era of tennis for sure. Jimmy Brown's younger brother, Ricky, also from my area or coaching from my area. And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Great again, all, yeah, these are all names near and dear to my heart. The last thing I want to ask you as it relates to this, you talk about that crowd in Athens and obviously it's memorable enough that you can speak 
to it with such clarity here today. How, because nowadays, and I don't know how aware you are of this discussion, but about amplifying the NCAA event and ensuring college tennis has and receives the sort of exposure, the quality of the product deserves, you know, there is some discussion in other college sports. There are places like, you know, uh, in for softball and baseball where that that's where their NCAA championships are every year. And when that ideas suggested in tennis, the obvious place that people turn to would be Athens. Is it that special of a community? Like, do they embrace tennis in that sort of way where it would create a special atmosphere? Well, it sure did back then. And, you know, you had uh, Dan McGill, uh, legendary coach, and then Manny Diaz was the assistant at that time. Um, And they had a great stadium. I don't know what they've done. You know, Honestly, Alex, 1984, probably it was May or June was the last time I was there. It's probably the last time I want to go back there. (laughs) But to be honest with you, but I don't know what's going on there. But um, but boy, they they really had some great teams. And um, I think they're still you would know much better than me. I don't know. But it's more. Was it a full house like on that day? Full house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was full. And then they were rooting for their boy Pern like there was no tomorrow. Right. So, um, you know, and, and it never moved. I mean, it was always in Athens. I don't know how that happened, but I think eventually they felt like they needed to move it around to be fair. Um, I would love to see it at Texas one day. And, and I think they have a great new facility now. And obviously, great teams and they've got Spaziri who's number one in the country. We give him a little plug here. So, um, you know, I, I would love to see it, give, give those boys a little advantage to have it at the, at, at their home court. Yeah, no, it's always interesting to hear. Well, you know, you mentioned Brad Gilbert, someone you partnered with to win the 1981 Maccabi games. And as a two-time junior gold medalist at the Maccabi games, uh, that's near and dear to my heart. What was that experience like? Just again, to have that opportunity. I, I imagine it was held where? Jerusalem, Tel Aviv? It was in Tel Aviv. Yeah. It was in Tel Aviv at the Jerusalem Tennis Center. And that was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was a really special event. And we had, um, you know, a semifinal match against another couple guys that were good pros, good college players. One, David Egdis, who's actually vice sure. president of Tennis Channel, played at uh, Trinity. And then Brian Levine, no relation. Played at University of Miami, was a great pro too. And we had a match that was 12-10 in the third. And it was it was insane um, to get through that. And then in the finals, we played our our, our uh, teammates. Um, we played um, Paul Bernstein and, and Ricky Meyer, sure. who were 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 fantastic players. Ricky was was a top hundred player, and they were favored to win. We won three and four. And so it was it was a big victory for us. And Brad was a good friend and, you know, had played a semester at ASU and there was a coaching change. He left, he went to Foothill and and then on to Pepperdine. But then we actually played an event that uh, we played in Cleveland, the Cleveland open. Um, we played doubles and uh, I think we had a match point in the semis against Testerman and Hank Fister, who were, were a great team. But so, um, and Brad was a good friend and a college Davis cup teammate of mine. And, but the Maccabi games was 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 very special and um, definitely something that I cherish having that gold medal. No, I and I imagine just in general getting the opportunity to compete for your country. You say it in Davis Cup. Do you think Davis Cup still has that same prestige? Uh, you know what? I, I, you're talking about the U.S. Davis Cup now. Y- yeah. You know, I, 
I, I think for the guys to make the team and play on the team, I just saw where Kudla was part of the team. I saw where Krychek and Ram played doubles. I think for the honor to to get uh, to represent your country at Davis Cup remains the same. <clears throat> I think they feel that same feeling. But to me, the Davis Cup is different, and it doesn't feel the same as when I was playing um it just you know having the different ties at the different um countries the home court versus the the you know being away and having the fans from the home court go crazy it just seems like now it's in one venue it just does not have the same feeling and then you've got these other team competitions that i think diluted a little bit um i, I forget i was listening to i think <clears throat> one of the great australians talking about how disappointed he was at, at, at where the Davis Cup is now. And I think it was John Newcomb, actually, who's very against what's going on. So I don't feel that it's the same. But I, but at the same token, when I see the guys with the, you know, wearing the, the, the U.S. colors on their, you know, apparel, uh, I feel like they feel it's, it's, it's just as good of an honor. And so I'm proud that they feel that way. And I think it's great for the players that can qualify and make the team. I think it's, it's, it's the best honor you could ever have. I think that's really well put the event itself still carries cachet. And yet it's not, it doesn't feel quite the heightened importance, the heightened intensity surrounding it that it once did. It does. You, you use the term diluted, having team events diluted. You're right. It feels like another one of the team events on the pro calendar. And I think all those team events are fun, but it's maybe the most disjointed of the team events. And as such, it's a little bit harder to follow. But, uh, you know, again, you know, it's going to be easy to follow the 2023 Arizona Tennis Classic going March 13th to the 19th. We are really excited to get down to the Phoenix Country Club, excited to enjoy the weekend. Certainly looking forward to all the action that unfolds as well. So, John Levine, thank you very m much for taking the time to chat with us. I'm looking forward to uh, getting down to your event and obviously getting to spend some time with you as well. So appreciate you joining the show today. Thanks so much, Alex. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Arizona Tennis Classic founder Johnny Levine. A massive thank you to Johnny for taking the time to chat with us. Of course, we are very much looking forward to getting down to Phoenix to cover his event in a couple of weeks. You can look for mini break podcasts every day recapping all the action. I believe I am also serving in the MC role. So if you follow on the live stream, yes, that will be my voice. You hear from changeover to changeover with all of that said, of course, we're rocking and rolling here at Crack Rackets. College tennis, pro tennis, you name it, we're covering it. Be sure to check out all of our latest podcasts and content on our website, crackedrackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the Great Shot Podcast, Mini Break Podcast feed, our Breakpoint show as well to ensure you don't miss out on any of the content. I know on the Breakpoint show, we've recently interviewed Taylor Fritz, Brian Koppelman, lots of good stuff. So be sure to go check out those podcasts as well. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Danny Westa, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. We've got tons of college tennis broadcasts coming to you every weekend through the remainder of this 2023 season. So again, 
we're rocking and rolling, and we know it's our job to provide all of you tennis fans with the most up-to-date information on everything happening in the tennis world. We plan to continue to do that throughout the course of this season. With all of that said, for the fantastic Johnny Levine, our super producer Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone. 